Tonight you have a handout. If you did not receive one, if you would raise your hand, we will get that to you. But you have a handout. It is not a psychological test. As we handed it out earlier, people were looking at it, wondering what in the world is this all about? Well, you're going to find out in just a moment. But you ought to have your handout, and I invite you to turn in the scriptures to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. We are beginning a brand new series entitled, In the Beginning, and it is not that I am going to be seeking to persuade you in one way or the other, but I'm going to challenge you to rethink what you think you might know about God's creation. Now, from the beginning, we need to acknowledge, number one, that God is. Number two, God is the creator. And number three, the Bible is his record. And so on those three truths, we will build this new study. Now look, if you will, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. The record of divine scripture reads, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, and God said. Now we're going to see what God had to say, and we're going to see what happened when God said what he had to say. But as you come to Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3, in our day, this portion of scripture has become a very controversial portion of God's word. It is believed that when modern geologists prove that the earth is millions and billions of years old, that conservative biblical students, in order to save the biblical account of creation, they turn to what is now commonly referred to as the gap theory or the ruin reconstruction theory. And so based upon recent developments in the fields of geology and so forth, we see an earth that just doesn't seem to match up with the age of human history. So we have to relook and see have we missed something? Does the Bible say something that maybe we've omitted or maybe not picked up on? 
And so, have we had to compromise our biblical beliefs, trying to bring the Bible in line with science? You see, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of dilemmas. And some are easy to answer. Others are not so easy to answer. When people hear that designation, the gap theory, we're told that the gap theory takes us essentially back to the teachings of a Scottish pastor by the name of Dr. Thomas Chalmers. And if they don't go back to Chalmers, they go back to the Schofield Bible. And so when people talk about the gap theory, immediately their mind says, well, this is new and it is reactionary. So if it's new and if it's reactionary, chances are it can't be. Is that not how we kind of view things? If it's new, it's kind of suspect, and it must be simply a reaction to something that has been put on the table that uh, students of the Bible really don't know how to handle. Now, as we begin looking at these verses and seeing what flows from these verses, we need to understand that when we begin to study scripture, that we do so basically from two approaches. Two approaches. I don't care what the subject is that is under investigation. That subject is gonna be studied from one of two approaches. Approach number one is what we would call theological. When we talk about theology, what is theology? It is simply the study of God. It is man's study of God. Now here's the problem. How many of us agree on everything all the time? How many of us come to the same conclusion How many of us do not allow ourselves to let our denominational moorings color our study of Scripture? See, that's the thing about theology that you have to be honest with. Theology is what the mind of man has come to understand from the study of scriptures and usually theology will give birth to two things. Number one, human tradition. And number two, denominational teaching. So when we talk about studying the Bible from a purely theological point of view, let's be honest. Our theology will color and help craft our understanding of Scripture. 
That is one of the great reasons why I thank God that I did not grow up Baptist. I grew up essentially with no biblical background. Religious background, yes, but biblical background, no. So when I came into the ministry, I could ask questions purely from an answer, uh, from a question answer perspective. I, I, I didn't know anything whereby it would color my study of scripture. I had no preconceived notion. Have you ever had someone tell you, well, that's what you Baptists think about the Bible? Uh, over the years as I've taught uh, seminary, I've had a lot of my students know that I am a Southern Baptist preacher, but they know that I am not a Baptist in the classical sense. I'll never forget, I had a student ask me, Pastor David, I know that you pastor a Southern Baptist church, but what are you? <laughs> what are you? And when I had that question put forth to me, this was the answer that I gave and continue to give. Though I am identified with Baptist, the core of me <coughs> is a biblicist. I do not ask the question, how do Baptists handle this particular passage of Scripture? My question is, what does the Scripture have to say for itself? Now, when you start asking that kind of question, you move from studying the Scripture from approach number one, theologically, to approach number two, exegetically exegetically. Now when we talk about exegeting scripture, we're talking about learning to study the text, allowing the text to stand on its own two feet and allowing the text to say what it has to say. Instead of speaking for the text, let's let the text speak for itself. Now, you do this by certain disciplines. Number one, in an exegetical study, number one, you have to define the words. Words have meanings. How do we communicate? We communicate in words. And so if a word does not have a specific meaning, we no longer have a specific message. It's amazing when the Lord chose to write his word. He started with Hebrew in the Old Testament. And then over in the New Testament, Greek. Greek is one of the most definitive languages known to man. It is very specific. It is very precise. One of the worst languages known to man, believe it or not, is English. I feel blue. Now, am I speaking of my color? Or am I speaking of my mood? Go get a jack. 
Now, am I saying go get a person named Jack? Or am I saying go get a Jack for a car? You see, in English, when we say something, we've got to come back and we've got to explain what we're talking about. I remember when the word gay meant something totally different. <laughs> you know? So the English language is very ambiguous. But in the scriptures, both Hebrew and Greek, that is not the case. That is not the case. For example, in the English language, we have the word love. I love my wife, and I love ribs. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So is my wife as important to me as ribs? Or is ribs more important than my wife? You see how that goes? And that is a close contest. <laughs> but again, language. We communicate the message using words. Words have meaning. And so when we talk about studying the scriptures exegetically, we begin by looking at the text. What does the text say? Not what do we wish the text to say, but what does the text itself say? We'll determine that by defining the words. And sometimes in defining the words, you have to consider the background, the cultural background. You have to study the historical setting. So in other words, to study the scriptures theologically, we're beginning basically with what men think about a given subject. What they've studied, the conclusions that they've drawn. And we know as you look at church history, they don't always come to the same conclusion. But on the other hand, if we're willing to study God's word exegetically, set aside our preconceived notions, our denominational teachings, the things that would color our thinking before we even get into the scriptures, if we're willing to study the scriptures exegetically, we can come to a conclusion as to what God says. And is that not what we want to do? Is it not safer to find out what God has to say to us instead of thinking about what man has to say about God? I trust God more than I do men. Let God be true and all men are liars. That's what the Bible says. So the truth is to be found in allowing God to speak to us. So when we come to this particular passage of scripture, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, what we want to do is we want to look at it exegetically. We want to pay close attention to the words, to the phrases, to the construction of each verse. 
And as we look at this particular passage and we consider some of the uh, historical background attached to it, what we find is this. You cannot just dismiss the gap theory. You just can't do it. When you take the time to look at this subject linguistically and historically, you simply cannot discard it and throw it away. Nor can you say that it is a modern invention to somehow harmonize God's Word with science. So, in the minds of many, when they hear the gap theory, they think immediately, okay, this is a compromise. And let's be honest, there have been compromises with the Bible and science. One great compromise is what is known as theistic evolution. Now, you got a great big problem with that. A great big problem with that. Remember, we started with three words of truth. Number one, God is. Number two, God is creator. And number three, the Bible is his revelation. So we're starting with those three truths. God is. God is the creator. And I mean exactly what that says. God is the creator. And he gives us a record in his word. But a look at the past reveals, believe it or not, that a majority of the early church fathers did indeed hold to what we call today the gap theory. And it was not for the reason of adjusting the scriptures to the findings of science. Matter of fact, science was very primitive back in those days. Remember the church... Uh, had a problem because they thought the world was flat. And so we see that there is that contention between scriptures and science. But ultimately what you do learn is this. Scripture and true science, they never contradict each other. For example, the Bible was very clear the earth is round. The Bible is very clear that the earth has four corners. And it took modern science to be able to see that there are actually four corners of the earth. I think one of the most amazing scientific issues in modern time dealt with NASA. When they were making the calculations in order to send up a rocket, eventually put a man on the moon, they kept on having a problem with their calculations until someone suggested to them Joshua. Remember? In the book of Joshua, during a time of battle, the sun stood still. The missing day. The missing day. 
The scientists of NASA, when they went back and they investigated this missing day, then they added it, and guess what? The equations came back exactly as they needed to be, and they were able to do it. Now, if that doesn't prove the scriptures, I don't know what does. And so true science and scripture, they always are in harmony. But we need to be careful when we think that sometimes we adjust what we believe about the scriptures to bring it in line with, with, with science. But when you go back and you study, you'll find out that the idea of a once-ordered world having been brought to ruin as a consequence of divine judgment, this was something that was clearly, clearly known, taught, and understood. And so when we talk about going back and, and understanding what we presently today call the gap theory, we can go back and historically see that this was a teaching and understanding of the scriptures long before our day. Now, you have a handout. And I want to show you something that is quite amazing. Now, the handout that you have is what is known as the Sarajevo Haggadah. Now, when you look at the Haggadah, the Haggadah is an illustrated manual that is used by the Jews during the time of Passover. It is their script, their manuscript that they follow throughout their observance of Passover. Through the years, as they have written the manual, the Haggadah, as they have written it, they have added to it and they have uh, given illustrations of, of, of great uh, biblical accounts in the Bible. Now, the significance of the uh, Sarajevo Haggadah is, first of all, it was put together in uh, 1350. 1350. It is of Spanish origin. Matter of fact, it is in a museum in Spain at the present time. Now, the unique feature of this manual, this illustrated manual, is that in this particular version, and there are different versions. It depends on uh, what part of the world uh, the Jews were living in and where they produced uh, the Haggadah for their specific uh, observance of Passover. But in this specific one, which is one of the most well-preserved, that's what makes this so unique. It is so well-preserved. What you have here are eight frames. Look at your paper. You could probably see the paper a little bit better than you can up on the screen. But there are eight frames. Now remember, writing in Hebrew, 
you go from right to left. In English, we go from left to right. But in Hebrew, you're going from right to left. So look at this frame on my right hand, okay? So in other words, you have four frames. At the top, you have one, two. At the bottom, three, four. You see that? I think we numbered those for you on your handout. And then when you look at the second frame, the next four, you have the same uh, way of looking at it. So you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 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 Now does anybody pick up immediately on an issue? This is the illustration of the creation week. We got eight frames when we would think we would have how many frames? Seven. Okay. Now, why, why would they have eight frames instead of seven? Well, look at your second handout. As you look at the first frame, you will see that that first frame is a picture called chaos. Before you look at the seven traditional days, the Jews, in their depiction of Genesis, Start not with what we would call day one. They start with a period called chaos. Now look, if you will, at the second handout. Here was their understanding. You have an original creation that becomes into a condition of chaotic ruin that has to be renewed or restored. So we have original creation followed by a condition of chaos. And that is where the Jews begin. They do not begin with the traditional day one. They begin with chaos. Then from chaos, then you got day one, which God says in verse three, let there be light. Look at your second frame. You have light and darkness. That's day one. But note, if you will, they understood that day one followed chaos. Followed chaos. Now, what is interesting is that if you took the time to really study this subject matter, you would find that even the Jewish Mishnah, now remember, you have the oral, uh, the oral traditions 
eventually being put together known as the Jewish Mishnah, and from that you have other commentaries. But one of the commentaries that relate to the Jewish Mishnah had this to say, called The Legends of the Jews. This is written in 1954, well, translated in 1954. Nor is this world inhabited by man, the first of things earthly created by God. He made several other worlds before ours, but he destroyed them all because he was pleased with none until he created ours. So throughout the Jewish writings, there's that constant theme that what, that what was created, it came under judgment and needed to be renewed or refashioned. That theme is everywhere in Jewish literature. Uh, some of the works that are available, uh, John Harris produced a uh, book entitled The Pre-Adamic Earth in the Early 1800s. What I'm trying to do is show you that the gap theory is not something new. It's not a knee-jerk relation uh, reaction to science uh, coming on board and saying that the earth is so many millions of years old, okay? Um, one of the best books out there was a book written by Arthur Custance entitled Without Form and Void. He wrote that book in 1970. Uh, another classic work is entitled Earth's Earliest Age, G.H. Uh, Pember. He wrote that book in 1876. And then one of the real classic on linguistic studies of Genesis 1 is a book written by Edward J. Young, Studies in Genesis 1, written in 1964. He wrote a book, Edward Young did, on three verses. Now, if, if, if you are a real student of the Bible, you'll know that Edward Young is recognized as one of the greatest authorities in the Hebrew language. Matter of fact, he wrote a, his classic is a three-volume set on the book of Isaiah. A three-volume, and each, each book is about two inches thick. And he wrote three volumes on the book of Isaiah. So, so I mean, his credentials are impeccable. And uh, he has done a, a very in-depth linguistic study on this portion of Scripture. And so the thing that I'm trying to get you to see is this. What I'm going to be sharing with you is not new. Now, it's new. It's new to a lot of people who may be hearing it for the first time because it's not being taught. It, it, it's just not being taught. Uh, you're, you're, you're not being taught it in, in, in seminary, and you're not being taught it in, 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 in Bible college. It, it, it has been replaced, essentially, by what is known as the uh, Young Earth Group. There, there, there's, a, there's a wave of, of young guys, and, 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 and they hold to the Earth not being any more than 6,000 years old at most. We know better. Now, the history of man, yes. The history of man, yes. 
But the age of the world, the age of the earth, that's a little different issue altogether. So how do you deal with this? And, and that's what we're going to try to tackle. How, how do you harmonize an earth that we know is much older than 6,000 years old with the history of man that we know is less than 6,000 years? This is why you even have those in the church that have given over have given themselves over to some of the uh, tenets of, of, of evolution. No, you don't have to. Now, now that's a very unwise uh, compromise uh, between science and the Bible. The answer we're going to see is right here in these first three verses. These first three verses. Now, when you come to Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, you have to ask yourself the question, how do we view the beginning of the scripture? We can only do one of two things. Number one, we can view this as a declaration of fact. In other words, what we're looking at is a declaration that God gives us in his word. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What follows that word earth? Hmm? A period. A period. What you have here, just looking at it linguistically, what you have here is a complete sentence. There's not comma, there's a period. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Period. That is an independent declaration that affirms absolute creation. That's how the Bible begins. Genesis 1.1 is not dependent upon any other verse or statement. It is an independent, standalone declaration that God is the creator, the originator of heaven and earth, period. No question. If you have a problem with Genesis 1.1, you've got a problem with John 3.16. You really do. See, this is where your faith really begins. And so, when you look at Genesis 1, 1, is this a declaration or, as others would have you believe, a description? Declaration or description? Well, looking at it, we see the period in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. So what do we conclude? We conclude that this is an independent declaration affirming absolute creation on the part of God. So the beginning was by means of God's creative act. 
But there are those who say, well, really, this isn't a declaration. It's a description. It is a description of the function of creation. The idea that God would begin creation with an earth having no form, no void, and covered in darkness. So we have to ask ourselves the question, does God's work of creation, does it begin with chaos? Or was creation a recovery from a former state or condition? Is verse 2 simply a parenthesis between verse 1 and verse 3? Or is it a declaration of God's creation? See, these are some of the questions that we have to raise and we have to answer. So when we look at Genesis 1.1, I would submit tonight to you that when we read in the beginning, not a beginning, but in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period, that that is an independent statement, declaration, that forces us to recognize the absolute creation of both heaven and earth by God himself. And with that, we'll stop tonight. We're going to look at another Jewish understanding and when we pick up in our next session we're going to look at something that most never even bring to the table even those who embrace the gap theory and I'm going to show you the significance of the baptism figure in the minds of the Jews in relationship to creation and then we're going to look at Peter, and we're going to see what Peter had to say about creation. And I think you're going to be quite surprised, because Peter is going to show, and it's there, Peter's going to show that the earth has been destroyed not once by water, but twice. Now, when we talk about destruction of the earth by water, where does our mind take us? No, in the flood. But Peter, I'm going to show you next week, Peter says that there was a destruction before the flood. So again, we have a very interesting insight that we don't want to pass up on. The Jews understood when you look at the so-called creation week, before you begin describing the traditional seven days, there was chaos. There was chaos. Now you say, well, does it really matter, preacher? Well, let me give you one final principle before we close tonight. The principle is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. What is that principle? The principle is this. 
God is not the author of confusion. That word confusion means instability and disorder. If Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 is a description of God's creative work, we have a real problem because God starts with disorder. And by virtue of the fact of the word create, the Hebrew barar, in the beginning God created, the Hebrew denotes two things. Number one, to create something from nothing. Ex helium. To create something from nothing. And with that same word, it is understood that what is created is created in its completion. And we're going to see an interesting statement. Everything that God does in his work of recreation, he says it was good. It was good. It was good. He says nothing about verse 2 being good. It's highly significant. So does God begin with chaos? Or was God's original creation perfect, but something happened, and then God had to step in and undo, renew, reconstruct. And I think that if I am successful in what I'm trying to do, you will see that what we're looking at in Genesis is not really six days of creation followed by the seventh day of Sabbath rest, but we're looking at six days of recreation. God has to step in due to something that happened to his original creation, of which the Jews were very aware of, and in their writings it's everywhere. And it's just a matter of us just going back and doing our homework and seeing what is there for us to learn. Okay? All right, anybody have a question before we close? Yes. Yes.